You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, this is Deep Tran, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic. And we're your token theater friends, people who love theater so much that we willingly got blindfolded again <laughs> at a show, uh, yeah, in a non-sexual way. So the things that w- we willingly put ourselves in really vulnerable pos- positions for this art form, and I feel like that should be appreciated. <laughs> but also, ooh. ooh. Today we have a special kind of Halloween prep episode where we are going to be discussing three horror shows we've seen all around, all around basically. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about I Can't See, an immersive experience by Psycho Clan. Then we're going to be talking about The Cooping Theory, which is running at RPM Underground on 54th Street. And we're going to wrap up by talking about the Sleepy Hollow experience. <laughs> and for that, we took the train all the way to historic Hudson Valley. Yeah, and then after that, we have an interview with Ruby Rakos, who is currently playing Jose's favorite person in the world, Judy Garland, in Chasing Rainbows at Paper Mill Playhouse. And after that, we'll be talking about cell phones in the theater, because everyone has opinions about cell phones in the theater, and apparently so should we. So that's what's going to happen. Hi, Patty Lupone. <laughs> don't hate us, Patty Lupone. Hi. <laughs> We love you. <laughs> we just don't love you throwing cell phones at people. Anyway. <laughs> but first off, let's talk about... I Can't See! I know, right? Okay, I Can't See is an immersive experience devised by Psycho Clan. And that's uh, Timothy Haskell and Paul Smithman, who took a story called uh, The Toll House by W.W. W. Jacobs and turned it into this... It's kind of like a fun house. I was going to say fun home. That would be fun. Fun home, but scary. But fun home is doing that funeral thing. Hmm? Did you see that? That fun home is doing that reading. Yeah, yeah, and- yeah. They're doing in a reading in yeah. a funeral home with um with a Jen Kalila and uh, Caitlin Kuhn-Kunin. and Kate Baldwin. And anyway, that's a whole other different kind of you know like scary because funerals are creepy. Anyway, back to I can't see. So it's kind of like a fun house. It's kind of like a love tunnel experience where you mm-hmm. walk through space and you walk through several spaces where things happen to you the difference is that you're blindfolded through the entire time so they warn you in advance that you're gonna be touched not in like an incredibly like intrusive way and not in an uncomfortable way you're gonna be listening to things and things are gonna happen to you and since you can't see you know that's the whole purpose of the show so it made me think so much about the the scary like mirror house in Us. Remember where Lupita gets abducted by her tethered? Um, I I haven't seen Us because oh. I can't watch horror films myself by myself, and so I really need to take people someone with me because I do get scared when I'm watching a horror film. The ironic thing is I didn't get scared through any of the stuff that we saw today. Yeah, I was gonna say you're scared watching them, but you're scared living them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, do these because you know. That's so cool that he said that because when I don't know in the uh, 
the process of getting into I can see because it's this whole thing, right, where you arrive at a fake lab mm-hmm. and they like give you instructions and you sign all like the, you know, like the if we die, sorry forms. Yeah, and they ask you what you're most scared of. What was your? What's your biggest fear? I don't remember what I said. <gasps> What was it? I probably made some like crass joke about it, something like "kill your hair, retiring" or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you can take the boy out Forty Second Street. Uh, yeah. Well, I actually no, and I told them I was scared of like free falling because I hate roller coasters, and every time I'm on an airplane, I always think, "Oh, is this the day?" So that's one of my biggest fears, and they were very surprised I said it really fast because hmm. you know I I, I spent a lot of time thinking about mortality and my own mortality. Oh, my God. And I were only, only alive for a brief amount of time. Well, it's good to be self-aware. <laughs> but now that I think about it, like, one of my biggest fears is, like, Indiana Jones's fear. I do not want to see a snake anywhere near me. If I see a snake on television, I, like, turn it off. If I see a snake on the internet, I throw my laptop away. So when Brittany did her VMAs performance, were you like, oh, I can't watch this? I mean... <laughs> I'll make exceptions for Britney. But when I see those, you know, like giant albino boas mm-hmm. in Central Park, or have you seen them when they're in Times yeah, yeah. Square? Oh, I cross. Like, I'd rather, like, cross all the way, you know, like, take a boat, take a helicopter, it's whatever. It's going to be like in Harry Potter where it breaks and then it just, like, like oh, I'm, okay. <laughs> terrorize everyone. Okay, but about I can't see. So were you scared? I was not because, you know... At some point, this is the interesting part, and that's why I was asking you, like, what was the process for you getting into the show? Because for me, those sadists made me go last. So I waited, like, 10 minutes before everyone else went. And then I could hear people screaming and yelling, no, and, and it was, like, so horrifying. Unfortunately, that was the only really scary part about the show. Yeah, the anticipation and the buildup was the scariest part. Where that there's this, so the whole the way the whole thing works is is you're blindfolded and you're actually given a headset, mm-hmm. and so you're hearing the story through the headset. And you know when they say, "Oh, you're in a graveyard and it's raining," like you know they splash rain on you and you, it feels like you're walking through mulch, which is pretty cool. And the scariest part for me in the show was was the beginning when they're like, "Turn back before it's too late," and then you just hear people screaming <laughs> in the headset you know something about people screaming just really puts me on edge and and so the anticipation in the horror film is usually the scariest part mm-hmm. so that was the scariest part for me and then it just unfolded like typical horror typical horror narrative you're in a haunted house and your friends start disappearing and then can you get out in time before you disappear too Ooh. did you die because you're not supposed of course to die. i died of yeah. course i died also yeah. did i make you think again about your own mortality you're like okay i'm already dead i'm not gonna think about exactly. it exactly <laughs> exactly but uh, I re- yeah, I really enjoyed how they make all the textures work because you're right, like walking, you know, like you walk through s- several different kind of terrains and you kind of feel like you're walking on them. Mm-hmm. And the I smells, felt transported. Yeah. The smells are also are really interesting. For me, I think, and I have to apologize if there are any cast members or people involved in the production listening to this because for me, since I was listening to the, to the recording and at some point, once I entered the experience, my brain went... This is fake, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, and, definitely. And then I wasn't scared anymore. So I want to apologize to all the actors because I don't think anyone has called them motherfucker. 
as many times as I did. <laughs> and I swear to God, I meant it, you know, as a term of endearment. Because, you know, like something would happen to you and I would laugh out loud. And I would go like, oh, you motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was the biggest motherfucker when they threw up on you. And <laughs> Oh, let's not go there. Or like, let's. That's a traumatic memory, and we'll never talk about it again. Yeah. But yeah, but, at one point you're in a bar and someone throws up on you, and there's a smell. You can smell it, and you can feel it. So you have the gross out factor. And if you're someone like Jose, who's sensitive to smell... Like, it probably ruined your entire experience after that. It ruined my weekend. I could taste <laughs> that fart bomb all the way from Friday night when I did it through, like, Sunday morning. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're... I think it's important. Yeah, if you're, like, very, very sensitive to those, like, kind of smells, beware of this. Because that was a really hard smell to get out of my brain. Yeah. I think it's also... Okay, I think my thing about why I wasn't scared was because... So, you inhabit a character in the story. Kind of like in those Choose Your, choose your Own Adventure books. Hi, it's, Sam. Yeah, hi, Sam. <laughs> so, you know, you inhabit a character named Sam whose friends want to go to a haunted house. And at some point, they ask you, do you want to go? And I was like, no, that is a dumb idea. I don't want to go. But they still make you go anywhere. So, there's actually... Because of that loss of control, I felt like I was just a character in a narrative. Narrative, and which made my brain think, okay, this isn't real. We're just going to go with this and it'll play out the way it always plays out in a haunted house. And so you know that you're all going to the haunted house and you're all going to die, mm-hmm. which doesn't quite work with, you know, because the thing about horror is like you can't see it coming. And when you can, and when you can see the twist coming, it kind of undercuts everything. Yeah, if you know you're going to die, you're going to be okay. Exactly. I mean, I think there is potential here because, you know, I think when we first heard about the concept, we were like, oh my God, it's going to be terrifying. You're so vulnerable. And I think if they could just make it more of like a psychological thing and really challenge the audience to reach deep down into what they fear and kind of manifest it in some way using the resources they have and using the fact that the audience can't see, I think it has the potential to be something really terrifying. Yeah, I agree with you because I think one of the one of the things that's both like both really wonderful about the show, but also kind of like the biggest detractor, is that uh, they try to do so much. Because mm-hmm. like you experience monsters at the beginning, then there's like creepy, you know, people in bars, mm-hmm. kind of like a serial killer kind of vibe, and then you get ghosts, and you don't need all the scary stuff at once. Like exactly. focus maybe on one. Yeah. Because then it just otherwise just becomes like a like a road show of like scary tropes. Yes, yeah. we can, we can do better. But also we're tough because exactly we everyone else was yelling and we didn't yeah, go together. Yeah, we we did. Yeah. yeah, the only thing time ice cream is when like people just grab me out of nowhere. Ooh. Yeah, I just don't like to be touched. It's like the subway. I, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm like a woman in the world. People want to touch me all the time, and I fucking hate it. So if you, if you really want to terrify me, just like touch me and just don't let go. <laughs> or throw stink bombs at them. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. If you want to scare Jose, just like wave like a like No, a if you want to murder me, do that. <laughs> don't, do not do that. If you want to scare me, bring a snake. If you want to kill me, throw a fart bomb at me. All right. Well, I Can't See is running until November 3rd, and tickets are 45 to $50, and there's actually Rush for 20 And it seems like it's getting, you know, like people actually want to do the experience. And so if you've never been blindfolded in a show before, this will be a good introduction to um, 
putting your life in other people's hands. That sounds so dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> you're in a room next to a Marriott in like near Battery Park across the street from the World Trade Center. You're going to be fine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And when you know that, that undercuts it. Uh, next up, we went to RPM Underground, which is a really cool karaoke venue on mm-hmm. 54th Street, which I had never been to. And then we went to see the Cooping Theory. Uh, the Cooping Theory is a new version or a new iteration of Aaron Salazar's The Cooping Theory, which originally was set in, like, what are, what are those, like, old-timey pubs? Tavern? Right? It's a speakeasy, the ones that are, like, yeah, hidden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So originally, a couple of years ago, when I first saw it, the show took place in, uh, in an underground speakeasy in Brooklyn, and it was set in a completely different time. And the story is quite simple. You arrive at a place where there's a meeting of the Edgar Allan Poe Society, and they're all there for some like mysterious reason, and you're one of the new members of the society. So when you arrive, you meet the characters, and you meet... Uh, you know, you learn a little bit about the the society, I guess, mm-hmm. and then you learn that there's going to be a seance. Like, how much time is going to do that sound? Forever. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can pick. We rather sing or do the sound. So it's up to you, listeners. Well, it's going to be Judy Garland at some point during this episode. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So once the medium arrives, things go south pretty quickly, and then ghosts start appearing, and you basically spend the next hour or so just like making your way from room to room to room to room, watching a lot of young actors throw themselves at tables and furniture, and then like dying also, because everyone dies always. Exactly. Yeah, another rule, if you ever find yourself in a horror movie... You know, one, don't go in a haunted house. Don't go in the room by yourself. And don't fucking do a seance. Don't call on ghosts. Like, what is wrong with you people? So were you scared? Nope. Were you scared (laughs) either time? (laughs) No, not really. I mean, I think the first time I saw it, and I know it's not fair to compare productions because this is a completely different thing. It's set in 1969. Which I actually don't know what that period brought to it. Other than, oh, the venue is kind of like a retro, you know, 1960s, you know, American Kish venue. And so they had to, like, match it. It's so interesting that you said that because I was wondering that also uh, when I went. And the only thing, and I'm not, I don't know if I'm seeing too much into it, but the only thing that I'm kind of trying to, you know, maybe make sense of is that, remember, I mean, I don't, I don't. I don't know if I even really want to go into like the nature of what the cooping theory itself is, because I mean, I, we might as well. Because the 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 premise of the whole thing is that all these people in the Edgar Allan Poe Society believe that Poe did not die because he was an alcoholic with demons and ravens following him around, but they believe that he was killed as part of something called cooping. Which did you know about cooping before? No. Okay. Well, the first time I learned also was the first time I saw the first version of the show. But anyway. Cooping apparently was uh, uh, a practice where back in the 19th century, and I'm sure like even way before that, during election night, they would grab someone, get them very drunk, and then like dress them up in different, uh, they would disguise them so people wouldn't know they were the same person. So they would just show up and vote again. Basically, Cooping is 
What? Voter fraud. <laughs> no, but basically pooping is what Republicans think immigrants can yeah, do in this country. Exactly. We just put on a hat. Hello, sir. I am Mr. America. Nice to meet you. <laughs> but no, we have IDs right now and we have yeah, anyway. So that's the the only thing that I, that you know that I was trying to make sense of was remember at some point in the show they say something about how it's nineteen sixty nine and Nixon mm-hmm. has just won. Mm. And they're wondering if maybe Cooper, they don't say it out loud, but I, it's like implicit. They wonder if, uh, Nixon maybe won because people were cooped or something. If there was cooping involved. And I don't think that this is obviously, I don't even believe that the characters believe this, but what, I, what was interesting to me, maybe because I had too much time to think, because at some points I just sat down because I was like, I don't want to go into another room. Uh, and or talk like, to more actors. Yeah, and then in the in the previous one, it was also about you know an election. So I wonder mm-hmm. if at some point uh, the playwright was thinking about the ways in which we try to reason when elections go bad, and how do we end up with people like Richard Nixon? So I wonder, for instance, if the next iteration of the cooping theory is going to be the cooping theory 2016. I mean, then that's a modern day horror show. So that we're still living in. I know. I think you're giving them way too much credit, but bless you, I try. as always. <laughs> <laughs> My thing about stories of ghosts taking on revenge, because what happens is Ed- Edgar Allan Poe. In the coping theory, you know, he possesses all of these young people who are trying to figure out how he died and he possesses them and they start like spitting out like lines from his poem and it's, it all gets weird and bloody. The thing is, in order for, as a person who doesn't watch horror, I think a lot about how it works. So, this is, <laughs> so I'm just like nerding out right now. So my theory about why revenge ghost stories work is when they work is when the uh, the ghost has a motivation that you understand and so when they come for you you kind of think you kind of deserved it and you're just trying to like save off the inevi- inevitable that's why the ring is terrifying because it's a it's a woman who was like abused and now she's getting revenge on her abusers via other people so the thing is, in the cooping theory, you know, the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe comes back and like vex havoc. And you're just like, what, but why? Mm-hmm. What is his, as a dramaturg, what is his motivation? Why does he want to screw stuff over like this? And the not having that question just made it seem like a, an acting exercise. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the shtick. Because mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. I love Edgar Allan Poe. Like when I oh, went to yeah, when I went to Baltimore recently, I didn't have any, like many hours to like you know spare, but I made sure to go to his grave because I love him. And you're right. I don't think I think of him as a friendly ghost. If anything, yeah, like right. Casper. <laughs> <laughs> like he would come and be because he was the man who suffered so much and he was depressed and he was an alcoholic and he lost the love of his life. Like I don't think he would come back and be like possessing people, killing them. Then he'd be like an emo ghost, just like yeah. life is. You know, just enjoy it. It yeah. is what it is. Especially not the people who are trying to solve your murder. Exactly. So maybe in the next version, they'll give us some motivation, and then they'll be scarier. Yeah, maybe we can be like possessed by his characters because his characters was fucking insane. Yeah, or he could be a character that we can talk to. Ooh, what? 
Oh, wow. Look at us trying to make things. She, we yeah. should write a horror show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the Cooping Theory is running until November 2nd, and it's $75, plus it's a $25 food and drink minimum. Um, I don't know if it's worth it personally, but if you're an Edgar Allan Poe fan and you like ghosts, it may be entertaining. The venue is pretty big, though. It is huge, and the venue itself is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, at the at the very least, if you're one of those immersive theater freaks who just love to talk to actors, this is a show for you. Oh, that's... I had so much fun doing that. Yeah. Because I love when, like, characters in immersive shows talk to me, and I always, like, make up stuff about myself. Oh, so yeah. who were you? And why did you come to the, the Edgar Allan Poe Society? Well, one of them... Oh, because I told them I got a letter in the mail. Mm-hmm. And the actor went, oh, <laughs> I'm sure like his entire script went like, holy fuck, what next? <laughs> oh my God, are you one of those assholes who just like to mess him up? Well, I mean, because I want to have fun too. Like I want to know, you know, I want to do stuff. But then I befriended like the hippie who was gay, who mm. said he was at Stonewall. And I said, that's a lie because I was at Stonewall. <laughs> and then I showed him my Judy Garland tattoo. <laughs> it's like, I was there the night Judy Garland died and we threw that brick. That was the fun part for me. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I hate when actors talk to me, so I'm good. Um, Don't okay. say that. We interview them. We love you, actors. <laughs> All right. Uh, the final show we're going to see, talk, but the final show we're going to talk about is The Sleepy Hollow Experience. <laughs> oh. That's my thunderstormy sound. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Ooh. It's like a deep voice, like a bass ghost. Um, it's a thing, and it's an immersive, another immersive experience. That's what is it about horror and just really getting the audience into it. Yeah, why do we want to be inside horror? That's like a really fascinating psychological thing for for everyone. Yeah, like everyone, go to your therapist. Like, ask yourself yeah. why you want to be scared. I want to be in an immersive musical where they make me sing with like Technicolor props. And a nice yellow dress like Emma Stone. What? That'd be cool. Like, if you could be, like, in your favorite kind of movie, what would it be? Oh, oh, God. Yes. It would totally be an Avenger, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I would be in Lord of the Rings. Because that's uh, my favorite movie. Oh, so. but I never such a nerd. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd be a hobbit, and then I go from, and then I start off in, oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the Sleepy Hollow Experience. Um, it's it's a co-production by Historic Cuts and Valley and Brian Cloudus Production. And actually, Brian is kind of a uh, an acquaintance of mine because he runs Serumbi Playhouse in Georgia, and he's been trying to get me down there for years. Because you'd the love fancy them. one with the helicopters and the yeah, sinking stuff. They do site specific musicals. I don't know Jose why you haven't been down there besides you hate flying. Because it's Georgia and there's racists. Should we do a field trip? I'll protect you. We'll talk okay, about it. Okay, <laughs> so, okay. So it's great because I've been hearing about the show for ye- literal years since they do it every year down there. And now Brian brought it up to Washington Irving's house, which I don't know how he did that, but bravo. So, but, so it's basically the legend of Ichabod Crane. And you as the audience, you walk around to different locations in the Washington Irving, Irving estate. And at the end, there's a headless horseman on an actual horse who looks actually headless. And he chases down Ichabod Crane and cuts off his head. It's, it's, it's awesome. Can't say it's scary, <laughs> but I had a time. 
Um, I actually, and, and, and I turned it into a musical. Like, it, it, Legend of Sleepy Hollow is like a really short story. And they turned it into like this one hour musical where there's like a love triangle. And Ichabod and Katrina Van Tassel had like a forbidden romance. And so when he dies, it gets really tragic, which I love the impetus behind that. I kind of just wish there was just more dialogue and not so much like exposition from crazy narrators about what happened. Mm -hmm. Just like let the story stand on its own without you telling us like how to feel about it. Mm hmm. I was wondering, because, you know, I, I told you this already, that one of the things that struck me the most was how white the audience was. And oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was like, just like, you know, it was a get out kind of moment for me. Uh, and when you're in that party and they put on the mask and you're just like, oh, geez, is this oh, the yeah. day it happens? Yeah. It's me. It's my turn. Anyway, but I was wondering, because I have never really found Sleepy Hollow, the story itself, scary. Like, I feel like it's very, like, anticlimactic. Mm. Like, I've never been scared of that story. And I wonder if this is what, like, horror for white people's like. Because, I mean, I know, for instance, that the stories that I grew up with and my, you know, the stories from my culture and the stories about, like, Latin American ghosts and all that kind of stuff, like, like, Llorona and all that kind of stuff. Those mm -hmm. are, like, really, like, shit your pants, scary. And those, sleepy, those are fucking vengeful. Yeah. And Sleepy Hollow, like, I've always been like, okay, so don't go into bridges. Yeah, or don't go home by yourself at night, which as a woman, you just... Shouldn't do anyway. Just, just, you just know that and you're, you know, they just train that into you. I think I always found it haunting. Yes, that's a good word for it. Yeah, I, I was never scared of it, but it was always one of those tales that just stick in your mind because it's just so unfair and so unfortunate. And it's just like, it, un, it it's unresolved. And I think that's why it does stick in your mind. But it's not, but I really did appreciate the production for like the spectacle of it i love the ability I, I loved that they were just ballsy enough to like put a, a headless horseman on a horse yeah it's insane <laughs> and you know because you went i went to the late show and you had been there earlier and mm -hmm. at one moment in uh my experience power went out <gasps> when they were doing uh a little you know like the little sit in the pub in the okay. round and power went out and it was obviously not expected so I have to commend the actors because they did an amazing job just trying to keep it together with like lanterns and stuff mm -hmm. while people figure out how to deal with the power. I feel like it would have been, it must have been scarier to not have light. It was nice. I mean, I wasn't scared like, at all, but it was nice. <laughs> it was kind of romantic. Yeah. Well, the kids next to me were scared. Kids shouldn't go to shows. They yell too much. You know, they actually <laughs> yelled. It was adorable. So mm -hmm. you know what? If you're parents with kids and you want to scare them a little bit, you take them to this. And afterwards, one of the little girls was like, what happened to Ichabod? And I was like, he dead, girl. Oh, no. <laughs> that kid's going to need therapy. Thank you, Deep. <laughs> See, you know what? You get, they got to learn about death eventually. I have to say that I thought the emo... Uh, Washington Irving was pretty cute. <laughs> I know, I know. Where'd he go? He I was so him dreamy. To come, I, he wanted him to come back. Did you go talk to him? Because like when you arrive, he's just waiting, writing the story. Did you go mm -hmm. talk to him? No, because I came really late. Oh, so of course I didn't would. talk to him. I was like, well, "How's it going? What are you doing? Like, well, what, why are you having that chest?" <laughs> what, what did he say? It was really great. He just started talking. He's like very weird British. American accent about I'm um, writing stories blah 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 and then he showed me what was in his uh, little like treasure chest that he kept in there but uh, no one else was talking to him and I was like he's there we might as well talk to him did you ask him why 
Did you did you tell him that Sleepy Hollow is a horror story for white people? Uh, no, because then he would have... I mean, he was playing the writer, so I don't want to offend him. <laughs> but it was so funny because like, when I was talking to him, someone pulled out a, a, a phone. And took photos, right? With the flash. <gasps> and then he just went, oh, what's that spooky thing or something? That was so cute. Oh, my God. That was like actually the most hilarious part for me because like, the actors acknowledge that... They're like they're, they're moments when there was like a train that would pass by, and they were like, "Oh my god, what is that electrical horse?" <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny because they're playing ghosts that yeah. are retelling the story. It's like all very meta and convoluted, and you know what? Props for just doing it in the first place. Yeah, and it's short, and you can buy ciders and beers beforehand. So go. Yeah, see it's it. an experience. It's, it's yeah, fun. yeah, it's an experience, which is like there's the holidays. I feel like that's all. You really want, you know, to be scared, to be scared or just have like an experience. Oh, maybe the reason people want immersive experiences and to be scared is because we just because then it just helps us feel something like feel some kind of like big emotion since all of all of our lives are just lived virtually now. Hmm. But that's why we go to the theater. Exactly. Yeah. I Not think. a lot of people go to the theater, though, but they do love going to horror shows, yeah, immersive true. horror shows. For me, I think there's also an element about knowing that unlike the horror of the current administration, you can get out of the Sleepy Hollow experience 45 minutes later. Yeah, but you can't get get out of uh, America ooh, unless you literally do. Ooh, 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 <laughs> the spookiest show of all. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Sleepy Hollow Experience is running until November 3rd, and tickets are $45, which is actually pretty pretty good. Okay. I have been very, very, very emotional since Sunday matinee when I saw Ruby Rakes play Judy Garland in Chasing Rainbows, a mm. musical at Paper Mill Playhouse that deals with Judy before she became Judy, mm-hmm. all the way up to the Wizard of Oz. So we see her growing up and like being with her family and like with her parents and oh my God, her dad. <laughs> and he sings to her. Anyway, Ruby <laughs> Rakes has been working with the show for over five years and her performance is just really spectacular. So I was very happy that she agreed to do our show and we talked to her about Judy and I kind of cried a little bit. So sorry, Ruby. Dear, when you smiled at me, I heard a melody. It haunted me from the start. Something inside of me started a symphony. Zing went the strings of my heart. Twas like a breath of spring. I heard a robin sing about a nest set apart. All nature seemed to be in perfect harmony. Zing went the strings of my heart. Your eyes made skies seem blue again. What else could I do again but keep repeating through and through? I love you, love you. I still recall the thrill. I guess I always will. I hope to never depart. Deal with your lips to mine. Our absentee divine thing. You've been doing this musical for quite some time now. Yeah, I've been working on the show for six years. 
what's like the most recent thing about Judy that you've learned? Because I'm sure you learn something about her every day, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's probably something uh, Lorna Luft told me um, when she came to see the show on opening. Um, I had run into her in the stairwell in my robe and my wig cap and, like, no makeup from, like, the eyes up. Um, and, we, and we just ran into each other in the stairwell. Um, but, uh, you know, something I always say is that, you know, because people always ask, like, what's it like to play um, an icon like Judy? Like, is, you know, that does that put you under a lot of pressure? And uh, my answer is no, because the show is about Frances Gum, the girl who became Judy Garland, and we don't really know who Frances Gum is. So, you know, she's a different person from Judy. So that sort of takes the pressure off. And, um, I, I had said that to Lorna, um, and <laughs> she kind of laughed and said, I don't think my mother knew who Frances Gum was. And I thought that was really interesting. And Liza Minnelli's seen it? Uh, she no. approves of it? Yeah, she's a, she approves of it. <laughs> she's, not, she's not seen it. Um, she has given her blessing. You were in Billy Elliot when you were 12, and mm-hmm. so, you know, like Julie Garland, you, you've been working for a very long time at a very young age, and so did that help you get into, like, the mental state of someone who wants to be a performer early on? Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, because she, Frances thought that this would fix everything, mm-hmm. and there's something about, like, being, being young um, and already sort of like achieving a life goal essentially and like you know thinking it'll fix everything and it's like well now I'll be happy and now like everything will change and then you sort of come to the realization that no of course not like you know the job isn't gonna bring you joy it's not gonna like fulfill you Mm -hmm. um at least not for very long um so I think you know sort of the disillusionment with um with the dream um, was easy to, uh, was easy to connect with. Um, and, uh, also just the, uh, experience of being, um, too young to be Shirley Temple or too young to be in like Matilda or Annie. Um, cause when I left Billy Elliot, that's what, like what was happening. And I was too old at the time. And then, but then being too young to be, you know, as in the show, like Lana Turner or too young to play someone my own age. <laughs> um, so I spent I spent years, the years between Billy Elliot and when I started working on Chasing Rainbows, um, not doing anything because there there's just there's nothing out there. Oh my god! Um, so I was in the it's similar similar boat, uh, except my you know livelihood didn't depend. On it. <laughs> it wasn't as a, the stakes weren't as high. Yeah, and you weren't supporting your family. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he was just in high school. <laughs> I read that Liza approved of the show because she says that her mom's biographies and her songs. Uh, yeah, and that's sort of, you know, the idea behind the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why, why use original music when, you know, the songs she sang are such a big part of who she is? Um, and tell so much of the story. Um, and I, I think it, it brings, um, sort of a special insight that I don't, I think original music wouldn't quite be able to grasp. Right. But I wonder for you, Ruby, like so far in your life, which songs would make up your lineup? Oh, wow. Um, let's 
Um, <laughs> probably, uh, God, I'm always chasing rainbows. Um, <laughs> when, when you're young and you're 12 years old making your Broadway debut, the thing that most people work their entire lives to do and then you get very early, like, what does that do to you mentally in terms of, like, what, what happens next? Like, how did you figure out, like, what was going to be next for you? Um, I didn't, I didn't figure out what was next for me. I sort of, you know, I left this show and just sort of, just sort of treaded water for several years until I, you know, found this show. Um, and then like, that was the new thing to like, hold on to being like, this will make me happy. You know, just sort of like, just like, great, great, great. This is like, cause you know, normal life, re my real life just felt like, is so it feels so like plain mm -hmm. compared to like working on a show is like feels like the real like where I feel like the most like myself and like you get and it's the most like life it's like you have the highs and the lows and it feels like you're really living and so then when like you know going back to high school and then being like oh is this is this is this <laughs> it like is this what it, is this what life is and so like what do you want to do after this Oh, I'd like to have any rainbows <sighs> that you're still chasing. Um, God, I mean, I'd like to do anything, but I'd love, like I did my first play last summer, um, cause I've, I'd only ever done musicals and that was such a new and interesting challenge. And it was so different from anything I'd done before. Um, so I'd, I'd love, I'd love to do more straight plays. Um, I'd love to do TV and film because I haven't, I haven't done that ever. Um, but yeah, just any, anything else, honestly, I just, anything new. <laughs> I was going to be selfish and ask you to never stop saying Judy. Cause I wonder <laughs> if you, <laughs> cause I wonder if you think of yourself like, you know, like decades in the future going back to like the, uh, stars born era and all of mm. that where your life got really dark. Uh, I, I would, I would, um, she's just such an interesting person to play and to sort of like figure out. Cause you know, you never stop discovering things about her. Well, they just seem to be in perfect harmony, zing on the strings of my heart. How, how, how did you get your voice to sound like that? Um... I think I, I mean, I already naturally had a sort of like jazz and swing voice. because That's what I've always done. Um, but then I just for like three straight weeks before my first um, audition for the show, I uh, listened to her recordings of the songs I needed to prepare. And I just would sing along with it and like while waiting for the bus in the morning and like while like sitting in the cafeteria waiting for my friends to come down for lunch, I would just like sit there and I'd listen to it and I'd sing along and I'd sort of like, um, copy her cascades and her, um, you know, her diction and her phrasing, um, to the point where now I, I, I don't go back to her recordings. It's just sort of, you know, it, I can put it in there without now copying her. It's just I sort of get the like essence of it. That's so cool. 
It's like she's in you now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, she's definitely she's definitely in there. Um and will probably never leave. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that because I mean I'm obviously a huge Judy fan and to be honest, like I'm a little bit nervous because this is the closest I'll ever be to Judy kind of. <laughs> and you know, for me, she's almost like a spiritual figure. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you have any sort of like ritual or like a prayer or anything that you say to her before you play her. Oh, um, I I don't. Um, you know, I I guess you know at the at the top of the show, I you know you know walk on stage in the dark and you know, just sort of just take a deep breath and the lights come up and like, it's, it's like I'm in a different world and it's like, I, it's like, it it, it is, sometimes it feels like someone else has sort of taken over. I think one of the most beautiful things is that in many ways over the rainbow has become kind of like a national anthem, Mm -hmm. kind of a world anthem. And I wonder, you know, you get to sing that song every night with all the audience. And I wonder what that is like. Um, yeah, it's it's such a beautiful song. And before working on the show, I never I never heard how sad it is. Yeah, oh. yeah. Um, it all it because it's it you know it's see it's it's so hopeful, but like it's um, especially when I you take into account, especially under the, in the context of the show, is you know the loss of her father, um, and how sort of over the rainbow signifies the you know, heaven and like where her father is. Um, yeah, and the, in in the arrangement of the song in the show, uh, after um, you know, there's a line that I heard of once in a lullaby. In the orchestration, it plays uh, "Always and Always," which is the uh, lullaby that Frank Gum sings to Baby Gum um, when she was little. Uh, and I didn't notice it in the orchestration until you know halfway through our run when we were in Flat Rock, North Carolina, our first production. <laughs> like halfway through the run, I one day during the show, I was like, "Is, is that is?" that always and always and always and I just like lost it because it's like sort of like her the presence of her father Jose and I just also saw Judy the movie mm-hmm. with Renee Zellweger and what do you think the fascination we all have as a culture with this person who had a who had who got the dream but also had a really tragic life yeah um I think I I've, I've noticed it it's not, it's not just with Judy, it's with all celebrities. We like, we love to fetishize the downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, like I noticed it like watching like a uh, lady day at Emerson's bar and grill. Oh geez. Yeah. And just like, it, you know, our obsession with people crashing and burning. Um, I guess it's just, you know, I, I don't even, I, yeah, I can't quite figure out why why we like to watch it so much but it's the i guess you know you see the person get you know what everyone else wants and then you sort of want you you kind of in like are like happy that they're not as happy as you know as you think they should be i wonder if you after the last scene when her entire life is ahead of her and you know you played her before she was judy like you said 
I wonder if there's a moment right after uh, the show when you go, oh, and you know everything that happens to her, you go like, Yeah, I mean, I think everything that happens in Chasing Rainbows sort of lays the groundwork for everything that happened in the rest of her life. Um, I, it's, and you sort of see that, like, she was never gonna win. Like, it was never gonna happen. Like, you know, it's, it's, there's, like, no other way for it to go. Um, you know, it's like, maybe, maybe if she didn't, if she wasn't this big star, um, and she, uh, could have had a normal life, maybe she would have been okay, but, like, would she have ever been happy? Like, it's, because it, she needed that, that approval and love from the audience that she didn't get, um, didn't get at home. And then once her father, like once her father died, she, she didn't have it at all. Um, you know, as I, I say in the show and as she has said, you know, now, now no one is on my side after Frank dies. Cause she's, he, he was the only person who saw her for her, for like who she was and like accepted her and who wasn't constantly trying to change her. Um, and so without that, um, it's kind of like she lets everyone pull her in all these different directions. Um, cause you know, cause she, cause they'll like, they'll give her, they'll give her love and that's all, that's all she wants. And so if, you know, I'll be whatever you want as long as you love me. Right. So I feel like we've been asking you a lot of questions about Judy Garland, but now yeah. I have questions about Ruby. So, <laughs> but why did you want to be an actor? Like what was the drive? What's the driving force for you? Um, no, I mean, when I was two years old, I told my parents that I wanted to go to Barbie dance school and That's wear a t- No. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to go to Barbie dance school and I wanted to wear a tutu and dance on a stage and everyone would clap. And, you know, when you're two year old, you know, says something like, I guess we should put her in dance class. <laughs> um, and so then I, I, you know, I, I'd been dancing since I was two. And then when I was eight, I went to a musical theater summer camp and mm. started singing. And that's when I was like, oh, this is what I like. This is what I really like. Um, and so, yeah. And then I couldn't wait until I was in middle school so I could be in the, um, in the uh, school musical. And then when I was in eighth grade, I, um, ended up in Billy Elliot and actually got to do it. But that's when I saw all these adults who like, this is what they do. This is like what they do for a living before that. I didn't know that was something you could do with your life. I was like, Oh, maybe I'll be a dance teacher. Maybe I'll be a nurse. Um, and so once I saw all these people making a living doing this, I was like, Oh, this is what I want to do. Um, cause I guess, I don't know, I guess, you know, I, I like, I like being other people. <laughs> I like being other people. It's easier to be other people than it is to be yourself sometimes. Like, I don't know how you guys do it. I don't know uh, yeah. Guys, yeah. Cause I, I mean, I always want to ask you, for instance, like, how do you know when the character stops and you go back to being you? Or be comfortable with you. Um, I mean, that's hard, especially in this show. And especially like I've sort of, um, sort of figured, figuring out how to be an actor. 
through doing the show because I, you know, before doing the show, I'd never, I'd never been in a show where I had to actually be a character. You know, Billy Elliot, I was in the ensemble, I was one of the kids, and you know, as long as I did the choreography correctly, like it didn't matter. Um, you know, there wasn't much uh, character development. <laughs> um, so then this was the first role where I had to like actually like really focus and like be, be someone else. And, you know, some, sometimes it's just like, I don't, I'm not even quite sure what I do, but I guess I take a step too far and it's like, I get off stage and it's like, I can't stop crying. Cause it's like, I haven't, there wasn't, I like crossed whatever line that is. Um, it doesn't really happen anymore, but it, it used, it used to, it used to happen a lot, especially like oh, when I first started. I wonder if it was like drastic at all. Like if you've had a different actress play Frank and I wonder if say goodbye to the first actor phrases was kind of like saying goodbye to Frank. Um, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think it's probably my connection with my own father that that does it. Yeah. In in the musical, a lot of people criticize Judy Garland's body mm -hmm. and her and her talent and her as a person. And I and I wonder, like sometimes you're the actor who's playing her, and people are telling you that you're fat or you <laughs> and and like. Most of the time, like trying to, trying to like ignore that in real life is hard, but trying to do that every night in a show, like I don't, like how do you keep, prevent that from like influencing like how you feel about yourself? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's never, it's never bothered me. <laughs> um, then there's actually a, a line that was cut, but it was my, my favorite. It was like, she's wholesome, fat. All American, fatty fat, and it would make me laugh every night. Um, but I and so you know people say all these like horrible things to me on stage and like in rehearsals. And I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I was like, I was like, it's, it's fine because I, I mean, thankfully I, um, um, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the way I look, and um, I don't have too many you know body hangups, so I it doesn't really rub me the wrong way. Um, and then just here and. I, because the whole point is that it was, none of it was true. It's like, she wasn't fat. She wasn't ugly. Um, she was just something that they had never seen before and they didn't know what to do with. But, but isn't that a part being an actor, like you're constantly being judged on your appearance and how it's right for yeah. a role. And so like, is it easy for you these days to kind of not take it all personally? I, yeah. I mean, you know, I, there are, so many different reasons that you don't get things, you know, um, that, you know, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's obviously it's easy to take it personally, but it, it could be anything. It could be anything. It, and it's 97% of the time. It's something that's completely out of your control. Like, Oh, you, well, you were too short. I was like, okay, well, can't change that. Um, you know, well, you have straight hair. I'm like, it's called a wig, but fine. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, it's just, like, these small, small things that it's, like, you know, everyone has this, like, specific thing of, like, in their mind of what they want, and all you can do is just, you know, do it your way, and maybe they'll like it. <laughs> 
I'm always so fascinated by all my after friends who are like, oh, I can't change my hair. And I'm thinking, what, isn't that what, isn't, isn't that wigs and yeah. extensions are for, like, what is the problem? Yeah, like, she's, can't be Judy Garland. She's blonde and has straight hair. I was like, I'm, I'm wearing a wig. <laughs> we, we did, we did a staged reading back in January and afterward, I wore, I wore a wig for the staged reading. Um, which was strange, but like, you know, it does make me look more like her. Mm-hmm. And so, and afterwards, someone had said, wow, she was even better than the girl who played her at Gatsby. <laughs> Same person. <laughs> it was still me. I'm just wearing, like, still wearing a wig too. I was like, she was even better. I don't know how that happened. I was like, it's the same person. <laughs> like Clark Kent's glasses. You know, yeah, you take exactly. it off, you don't even know it's the same person. I came out of the stage door and people don't know who I am. <laughs> Like, is that? She's wearing glasses. It can't be her. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And the last thing that I wanted to ask you uh, precisely about the stage show is, I'm sure you get, like, hundreds probably of crazy Judy fans like me who show up and they're like, oh, my God, I love you. And, like, they tell you personal stories about them, you know, and, and, and Judy. And I wonder, does that ever, like, get easy to deal with? Or is it just, like, oh, my God, it's so fascinating because I Judy was it, 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 I I never had that connection with her um, or really anyone. So it's always it's always interesting to um, hear how um, how someone can have that kind of impact on someone's life when you know you've never met. You've just you know it's just this like especially with Judy, she's so specific in that. Like you know she is one of those people and one of those stars that just for some reason speaks to so many people so personally. And I, I don't think we really, we've really seen it since. Um, so she's, it's just, she's a very specific, specific, uh, um, sort of icon for people. You should have seen me on a train back from Melbourne. I was like <laughs> listening to Carnegie Hall. It's oh like God. sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. So yeah, uh, but you're wonderful, and thank you so much for doing this. Like I'm so grateful, I'm so happy. And uh, would you like to invite our viewers and our listeners to see Chasing uh, Rainbows? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I love uh, for everyone to come out to the Paper Mill Playhouse in Melbourne, New Jersey, um, to see Chasing Rainbows: The Road to Oz. We're there for two more weeks, so come on out. In terms of people who have done Judy Garland impressions, which which fake Judy is the best Judy? I wanted to ask Ruby that, and I was just so like starstruck and so like nervous and so emotional that I forgot to ask her that. That's a great question, and I think that they all add something to because that's the beauty of Judy. That oh god, I'm such a it's like I'm not You're a cult, queening I'm not out a right cult now. Member, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm even touching my face like yeah, Andrew Garfield <laughs> and Angels in America. Did you, did you um, need a handkerchief? Just like, oh my goodness. I need a Chardonnay and a cigarette. And I don't know. Anyway, no, I think the, the man beauty. man who got away. The be- oh my God. Stop trying to make me cry. I think the beauty about Judy is that she's so fascinating and such an enigma in so many ways that every person who's played her has, has added something different to, you know, to what we know of her. Mm-hmm. Like with Ruby, for instance, I appreciate 
that we saw the warmth and how she knew that her life was probably going to turn out great. There was always that like little like spark of hope inside her. And just seeing happy Judy is nice. You know, mm-hmm. hopeful Judy is nice. Because then we see, you know, like right now, like you can go see Chasing Rainbows. And then you can go watch Judy at a movie theater later and just like, you know, like slash your veins and like hang yourself and be depressed forever. Because then with Which Renee, is my optimal feeling. No. Because then with Renee, we get to see, you know, that part when Judy had lost that spark and her body was just like falling apart and... You know, like the spark was reignited every now and then, but she was just so exhausted all the time. Poor Judy. So you love all the Judys. I do. Give, I do, give him yeah. more Judys. Yeah, I love Tammy Blanchard and Me and My mm. Shadows. Judy Davis is absolutely fantastic in that movie. I never got to see Tracy Bennett do it on Broadway. You did, right? No, no I, I, I. And then I never got to poor. see, I think it was Isabel Keating who played her in The Boy from Oz. Oh, really? Yeah, which I never saw. That's where uh, Stephanie J. Block played Liza Minnelli. What? Yeah. So I never saw that either. So out of the Judys that I know, I, I like all of them. Yeah. And and there's more Judy knowledge to be had. So someone bring back Boy From Oz. Give us all the Judys. All the Judys. All right. Well, when, we're not talking about Judy more today. Sorry about that last Why? five minutes. Why? 30 minutes. Instead, we're going to be talking about cell phones and why people are so upset about cell phones. The New York Times has ran two articles about cell phones in the theater. One around the time Rihanna went to slave play and texted Jeremy O'Harris during. And the other was about in The Wrong Man, an off-Broadway musical happening at MCC Theater right now, Joshua Henry was singing, and he noticed someone taking a video of him, and then he took the phone out of that person's hand. And and then you also have people banning cell phones in the theater. At Freestyle Love Supreme, we all had to put our cell phones into a yonder pouch, and some people think that's like the future of live entertainment. And so I just really wanted to talk about why people are just so up in arms about cell phones when in my personal experience, every time a cell phone has gone off in a theater or someone's taking their cell phone out and taking a photo, it's like maybe like a five second disturbance and then we go, we get on with our lives. It doesn't ruin the show. For the most part, there were the times when a cell phone goes off in like a really quiet pivotal moment and then you're just like what the fuck what is wrong with you people but otherwise like i it's one of those things i guess it's just so cell phones just so much part of my life that i don't really get upset if they go off in inconvenient times because that's just what they do that's just the human folly of giving us these devices in the first place no one's perfect I don't know. Like, are you upset about cell phones? I mean, I'd rather they not go off because they are kind of distracting, but I don't think it's the end of the world. I think that, uh, oh, and I forgot to say something. Mm -hmm. Ring, 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 went the cell phone. Anyway. (laughs) um, And also, you know, because I I do think that when you go into a space where you're going to be sitting in the dark and you're going to be sitting with other people, you're going to be watching a show. There's a contract that you sign. Not only mm-hmm. with, you know, whoever's joining you, but with the entire audience. And something that I think part of the cell phone, like, drama is that cell phones 
you know, what's that saying that Benito Juarez said? Like, you know, like you're uh, uh, respecting someone else's right is peace, right? Mm-hmm. And once you break someone else's peace, then that's wrong. If it was just a performance just for you, bring out your cell phone, bring out your iPad, bring up your laptop, whatever. But when you're surrounded by people and you're sharing a space with them, it's not only your space anymore. So try to be mindful. I mean, we don't, we don't do like crazy stuff when we go to the theater. Like we don't like talk to people. Like we no, just no, try. We don't talk back. And the talking is not the issue and the cell phones are not the issue, but the sharing of the space and being mindful of others. With that said, it is ridiculous that in 2019, when cell phones have been around for so long, we still have this problem because people should have already figured out what to do. Like you either tell them, you either ban cell phones, right? And you put them in their little pouches mm-hmm. or you, you find a way, right? Because I think that part of this like drama, I think that it's like kind of perverse. It's kind of like they get something out of it. Like they get off on it. And like, there's like, Ooh, the cell phone and Ooh, the drama. Yeah. I think, I think people like to argue about it because it makes them feel like it it, it gives theater a room in the conversation in some kind of conversation and but i don't actually think it's a productive conversation to have because it's such an old-fashioned conversation to have like i don't think movie industry people are like worried where people actually take bootlegs of movies film bootlegs bring video actual video cameras into the movie theater and film bootlegs i don't really think the hollywood industry really cares that much about it it's like just let people live and let live and yet some for some reason the performing arts does and it's one of those and then the conversation around it always turns into one side going well people need to learn and like people need to respect the art form and people need to like have better manners and listen to direction and then another side going you're being exclusive and you're putting away audiences and new audiences will just come as should just be welcomed as they are and i really feel like that's a reductive conversation because most of the time cell phones that go off are usually from older folks who don't know how to use silence and I've rarely ever actually seen a like a young person actually texting during a show. And when it does, if the whatever happens on stage is interesting enough, I'm not going to notice it. Yeah, the, well, but I mean, the the movie industry yeah. does care about that. They know they can control it because it's so massive, and like you mm-hmm. know, like movie theaters don't really have ushers, but but they did care about that. Uh, for instance, there are theaters like the Alamo where they are like cell phone free experiences, where the, if you use your cell phone, you'll be kicked out. Oh shit! Yeah, so you know it is important because. Well, I went to the Alamo. I've, I've used my cell phone during the Alamo. Sorry. Ooh, yeah. I don't I know. know her. <laughs> uh, but it's just you know like pulling that light out. It's distracting. And also something that I think is important, and we talked about this briefly when we discussed Hannah Gatsby's Douglas, is that sometimes those lights can put the actress on stage in peril. Oh, yeah. Well, and, but then in Hannah Gatsby's show, like, she put it in a yonder pouch because... Because she knew that. Yeah, she knew it, it was going to be a problem if she doesn't, which... Salt theaters have the right to do what to, you know, put down the rules of the space. But at the same time, I don't like it when the conversation then turns to audience and what you need, like you need to do this in order to get audience or or you have to like teach audience something. I just 
don't think it's productive be because it assumes something about a certain kind of demographic, mm-hmm. which is usually it, it assumes that young people and people of color are like heathens who don't know how to act in a in a space when most of the time it's just a small like certain kinds of individual it's just like individuals acting outside of race or class who are just don't care about the rules like there's always people in certain groups who don't care about who who don't care about the rules who will film this who will film the show who will take photos of the set when they're not supposed to and the thing is like how do you deal with human assholery that's very true. I think, yeah, I think it's one of two options now. You either, uh, but it's it's very important that we touch on race, and you know, it's mm-hmm. always older white people whose phones go off always. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, you know, I was, I don't like the fact that uh, slave play has been, you know, the center of this because slave play is a play that's been very popular with people of color yeah and the thing is i think every i think it shouldn't be like unilateral rule of like every time you're in a theater you should take yourself you should turn off your cell phones i think like slave play there wasn't there wasn't actually people going around saying turn off your cell phone so technically you can take a photo if you or during a show or text if you really wanted to some people just didn't and you know freestyle love supreme you're not allowed to have cell phones so them away yeah like you the rules of space should be set depending on the individual space and the individual you know preferences of the artists involved but it shouldn't i don't think it should be a unilateral rule no i I was really struck when i went to see six in boston when the first thing the the announce you know one of the announcements before the show started was unlike other productions of six you are not allowed to take photos or recordings or in this one, which means that maybe in the West End, they're more, more cell phone friendly. And I think the, the option, you know, we have two roads here. Like we either put cell phones in little lockers or people start, you know, mm-hmm. producers buy those pouches and make enforce that rule everywhere or writers and producers and theater makers find a way to accept that smartphones are here to stay and find a way to incorporate them into the productions yeah you know, like, or accept it yeah don't let it like upset the production don't let it like kill like because theater is not not something like sacred like exactly yeah. it's not any more sacred than a concert where everyone's filming everything yeah. like if fucking taylor swift can perform and have a shit ton of cell phones in her face theater artists can do it too it's not a distraction no and i mean <laughs> it also speaks a lot about how broadway specifically has been so bad at making recordings of their shows exactly and people want those recordings i think if we had a dvd of hamilton people would not pulling i mean they probably still would but a lot of people would not be pulling out their phones during hamilton yeah so be like oh i can just buy the dvd afterwards yeah or if people want to instagram story a show and like let them it's like market it's like use it as marketing if people want to like take photos of the thing it's considerate them wanting to have a record of what it is of this experience and yeah. like try to like monetize that in some way. I've wondered if maybe like having uh, cell phone friendly areas in the audience might help, like keeping the people who are going to be using their cell phones, you know, away from the people who won't. I don't know. That, that, that seems kind of like 
vaguely segregationist. No, but I mean, remember there was a time when there were smoking sections in planes and like movie theaters and stuff. Like if you're not going to be smoking, you don't want the smoke in your face. So it is segregationist, but not race-wise. I mean, it would be race-wise because it would be all the old white people upstairs <laughs> with their phones. Which I support. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Figure it out theater, but stop it. This is really getting boring. And yeah. It's, 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 it's the same talking points over and over again. It's it, not productive. It's not that interesting. Yeah. It's like, can we move forward in a conversation like, that goes beyond, should we have cell phones in the theater? Should we not have cell phones in the theater? It's a thing that happens. Deal with the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. I have to say that me personally, as a, as a person who does love theater, and it's my job and all of that. I do respect all of that. I never pulled my cell phone out. Mostly because I want to be a part of the, you know, I want to be immersed in what what's happening, and my my not my 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 motto for that would be, you know, unless you are like a heart surgeon or something, if you cannot spare your being, you know, on your phone for two and a half hours, maybe just stay home, or make better plays so that people don't feel the need to pull out their cell phones. But, but I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I usually actually only think about my cell phone when I'm bored Mm. during a show. And then I'll be like, what time is it? Mm. It's like, what text have I gotten? When when, when am I going to like eat after this? Mm. Maybe it's a symptom of something larger. It's also cell phone addiction. Oh my God. I sound like Joe Biden. (laughs) And I love cell phones. And I love, I I think people. It's like back in the day we were talking about bathhouses. Yeah. Oh my God. That's crazy. Yeah, put them in put them in pouches and stop complaining. Yeah, if you don't want them, put them in pouches. Yeah. Okay. Bye. That mic has been dropped. Um, thank you all for listening, and please remember to rate us and review us. It makes us want to have make more episodes for all of you. Um, if you want to watch our interview with Ruby, uh, you can find us on Token Theater Friends on YouTube. Um, anything else you want to say? Sing went the strings of my heart. It's all Judy all the time. <laughs> Judy theater friends. <laughs> friends of Judy. <gasps> Tell you, you're, you're friends of Judy. I'm friends of friends of Judy. Can we rebrand it? Can we rebrand our <laughs> show? Anyway, thank you for listening. All right. Bye. Remember, theater is more fun when you take a friend. And their phone. Yeah. And leave your phones at home. <laughs>